Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Great acting or storytelling can be so powerful that you may feel the experience is taking place solely for you. Maybe you felt that impact during a play or watching a film. Well, later this hour, we'll hear from the creator of Candle House Collective, a theater company that performs interactive plays over the telephone for an audience of one. First, soon after you open the cover of The Kingdoms of Savannah, the new novel by George Dawes Green, there appears a note on history which begins, Savannah may appear to be some town out of a fable with its vine flowers and cast iron balconies and fairy turrets, but truly it rests upon a bed of history so vile that no novelist could invent it. That history informs Green's story about the Musgrove family and crimes they encounter. You may also know the author for The Moth, storytelling organization he founded 25 years ago. George Dawes Green joins us now via Zoom to discuss his new book, Welcome to City Lights. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Lois. In the prologue, we meet Luke and Stoney. Why are these characters important? Stoney is really the center of this book because it's a book about a woman who has a particular deep, rather mysterious passion, a connection for something she calls the kingdom where she thinks that she lives. So there are two main mysteries in this book. One is the question of who kills Luke and why? And this innocent, homeless young man who burns to death. And it looks like it's arson and a rich real estate developer was just torching one of his buildings. and. Uh, Luke the Vagabond happened to be sleeping there. But as the novel goes on, 
that mystery deepens and we're not certain that the initial explanation is true. But then there's this other mystery. What is Stoney's kingdom? And why is she so obsessed with it? And is it real? Is it something she's just imagining in her mind or is, or does it have some commentant in reality? I don't know. So, hmm. uh, so those are the two early characters that we meet. Luke's murder is described as a Savannah type of murder. What does that mean? <laughs> well, Morgana Musgrove, my protagonist, calls it a Savannah type of murder. Every now and then in Savannah and uh, the area around Savannah, there are these incredibly brutal murders where the butcher's bill is astonishingly high. And they're just Murders usually committed by a man, usually a stupid man who has some kind of a great confidence in himself, believes that he is invulnerable, and he commits a crime, and then that leads to a cover-up, um, and the cover-up means there have to be more crimes, and then, and then you just sort of get this spiraling out of horror, and this happens in Savannah often. And one of the examples that Morgana refers to is a bludgeoning that took place in uh, Brunswick, which is about an hour south of Savannah. And it really took place about 10 years ago. Guy Heinz murdered his family in a trailer. He bludgeoned them to death, one after the other, until he had murdered eight of them. And to this day, no one really understands what happened in that trailer, but clearly there was an argument. Guy Hines was selling methamphetamine. One of his brothers, you know, was arguing with him and then other family members started arguing. Somehow or another, he winds up bludgeoning eight people. I don't know how one does that. Mm. (laughs) Well, you further write about Savannah as, quote, a pit of vipers. A great city that sets its alcoholics loose on St. Patrick's Day (laughs) and take issue with its ghost tours. Vivid descriptions of flaws about this city, George. Is the portrayal of Savannah in this novel meant as a corrective? Absolutely. I am in love with Savannah. And I always have been since I was a little boy. First of all, it is the most beautiful city in the country to me, without question. I mean, I don't know. I've never been to Des Moines, Iowa. So, I mean, there may be other cities. I I just think Savannah is gorgeous. It's filled with fascinating people. You know, the other thing that I really love about Savannah is it's so compact. For a city that has that many interesting worlds, it's really very, very small. You know, you can stroll across the city in, you know, just a few hours from one end to the other. And yet there are all these kingdoms within Savannah, all these different realms. There's the enclave of the very wealthy, and there are Black communities that have really been there for 200 years. And there's, you know, a gay community, there's an artist community, there are homeless encampments all around the city. And because they're all so cheek by jowl, It just makes it for a fascinating place. So I love the city. I do think 
that it rests upon a bed of evil. And the history is something that we have to deal with, we have to be open about, and I don't think that we have been particularly open about uh, the horror of Savannah's history. But I do believe that the city is getting better and better all the time. And I'm madly in love with it and always will be. <laughs> but indeed, the importance of taking in the beauty of those gorgeous, impeccably well-planned city squares and all of the lush foliage must coexist with the fact that all of this was built upon enslavement. Yeah, and that's something that uh, we don't want to do. So when I talk about the ghost tours, I don't mind ghost tours. You know, I think it's fun to tell ghost stories. I grew up with ghost stories. My mother loved to have seances when I was a boy, really. I love all that. What bothers me and what I think is deeply wrong is that the ghost tours and most of the tours in Savannah evade the real darkness of Savannah's history. I mean, just to give you an example, when Georgia was founded, you know, Savannah was founded in 1743 by James Oglethorpe and slavery was prohibited. Oglethorpe was an abolitionist and the trustees were abolitionists. And so Savannah, unlike its neighboring colonies, the citizens of Savannah had to campaign for slavery. So they had to give sermons on what they called the virtues of slavery. And so there's this terrible, horrible hypocrisy from the very founding of the colony, that here we had an abolitionist colony, and it took less than 10 years to throw Oglethorpe out, to throw the trustees out, and to do what the white colonists dreamed of, which was to establish a regime of um, slavery. So I think we have that, that particular horror right at the very root of Savannah's history. And it, it got worse from there. <laughs> well, you do give credit to Oglethorpe for his enlightened thinking, and you call him a jewel of a man and the last great citizen of Savannah. <laughs> no, he's incredible. Oglethorpe, well, first of all, he had always been an adventurer. He was a great raconteur, by the way. Boswell, in his Life of Johnson, writes about Oglethorpe's stories uh, over and over again. So, of course, that makes him dear to my heart. Yeah, imagine if the mob had been around when Oglethorpe settled on these shores. Oglethorpe would have been there every night. <laughs> and the other thing that I loved about Oglethorpe is that he got sick of the colonists. He was got sick of their whining. And he moved out of the city and moved into the tent of his friend Tomachichi, the Yamakrai Indian chief, and lived there. And you know, he would do the work that he had to do, but he just couldn't stand to be around these whining colonists. So Oglethorpe was a true, um, a great leader with a great plan. He, his design for the city is really second to none. And then 
it is true that after that, things started to quickly deteriorate. Mm. Please introduce us to members of the Musgrove family. You've already mentioned the matriarch Morgana. Yeah, Morgana, first of all, um, in her 60s, she owns a great big house in the middle of the Victorian district, this Romanesque revival house. And she is this doyen of Savannah society. And she's also quite mean and particularly mean to her children. She has a terrible mean streak. She has been often on an alcoholic and she's a very difficult woman, but very, very brilliant. And when she discovers that her husband left her in his will, all of his little businesses. So she finds that one of those businesses is a detective agency, which is, you know, a little mostly moribund, but a client approaches her, offers her a great deal of money to work on it, um, investigating this case of murder, the case of the murder of Luke Kitchens. And she to everyone's surprise, because everyone knows that this horrible real estate developer is the one who did it, Morgana accepts his money and then inveigles the members of her family to come join her in this case. And the members of her family, all of her children and granddaughters are just quite sick of her. She's manipulative. She is, as I said, mean. And they're fed up with her, but Nevertheless, she knows how to press these buttons. And she brings in uh, her daughter, Willou, who's a Superior Court judge, and who is connected with a, a particular, I call them the kingdoms of Savannah, the different realms. And here's this, the sort of the legal realm, the courtroom realm. And so she has a lot of information that's useful for Morgana. And so she brings in uh, her son, Ransom, who is kind of a ne'er-do-well, ne'er-do-well, has wound up living at one of the homeless encampments, but is like his mother, pretty smart. And particularly, she brings in her granddaughter, Jack, who is a granddaughter via the marriage of Morgana's daughter. Jack has been ad adopted in the family. She's black and She's fierce activist and fiercely fed up with Savannah society and rather obsessed with notions of justice. And I find her particular journey through this book to be, that was the thing that sort of propelled me through this novel. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the author George Dawes Green. We've been discussing his new novel, The Kingdoms of Savannah. The interracial makeup of the Musgrove family struck me as unusual in terms of their regard for one another. Jack is clearly the favorite granddaughter of Morgana, the Musgrove siblings don't behave in a way that shows racial prejudice. And that extends to the way the family stature is viewed by 
others in the city. How realistic would this be in Savannah, George? Well, I think it's I, I think it's realistic. It, Morgana is an enlightened person, and so, as you know, Savannah's a you know Savannah's a blue city. There are members of the family who are deeply conservative, but Morgana herself is not. She is a lover of the arts. So I don't think it's unrealistic at all that there, I didn't think that there needed to be any animus against, you know, any racial animus or, I think that it's perfectly understandable that families in Savannah are accepting of, of gay marriages of their siblings. I think that there's strain and that's clear. It's, you know, it's evident that Morgana is struggling with this new world. But I find her struggle to be fascinating and somewhat inspiring. Yeah, I mean, that aspect of the family is welcome. There are references to seventh and eighth generation Savannians in this story. Would you talk about your depiction of class structure in the novel? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating in Savannah because there's there's always a turmoil there. The city has new blood all the time. People are moving in now, particularly folks from Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyers from Atlanta are coming Letting down. that rabble in. <laughs> and buying the houses down there. Folks from New York are coming down. But, you know, they always have. So there's always this sense of turmoil. But what is interesting is that when folks move to Savannah, they've never tended to bring their ethos with them. They sort of leave their ethos at the city gates and they take on the city's ethos. This was particularly interesting to me because in the 1850 census, Savannah was mostly populated by people from either the North or foreigners. And so you'd think, oh, well, that would make it a, you know, an enlightened, liberal, uh, Yankee-style city or an abolitionist city, but not at all. It was um, the folks who came to Savannah, you know, really accepted what they were given. And um, there was no abolitionism in Savannah in the 1850s. I always find that particularly interesting, the way the class system could break down in Savannah, but but it doesn't. You know, when when you go to the to the homeless encampments around the city, you see there's thousands and thousands of people in the city who don't have homes. Um, they're black and white, and there are camps for for their camps for drug addicts. There are all black camps. There are all white camps. There are mixed race camps but there are just so many of these encampments. And then in the middle of the city, you've got these fabulous, fancy, turreted houses where the wealthy live. And the, those two groups, they see each other every day. They pass each other in the squares. They, there's not really much connection between them. Although sometimes the homeless people will work at the rich folks' houses. So I always found when I was at the encampments, that they knew everything about the lives of the rich folks of Savannah. And that I've incorporated into this book. Yes, I was hoping you'd talk about the role of the 
people in the homeless encampments within this story. It reminded me of a Greek chorus. Oh, yes. I think it is a little bit. They are, you know, this is the thing I found. So I had a friend, James Kitchens, who lived in one of the homeless encampments, an encampment under the exit ramp of the Harry S. Truman Parkway as it comes down to President Street. And, and so he would take me over to the encampment and we'd sit around. They had pulled in easy chairs. So you could sit out there under the highway and just talk. And I found them, uh, you know, to be uh, a mixed lot, but among these homeless folks, were many like brilliant raconteurs, really smart, savvy, knowledgeable people who simply had decided they, they didn't see any point to the rat race. You know, you, you could go back to the city and get a job and then spend all of your money on, you know, rent and utilities. And they just found that the slight discomfort of living out under the highway was worth it to them. Now that's not true of all, there were many people who live in the homeless encampments, who have to live there because they're, um, for one reason or another, you know, sometimes they have mental uh, incapacity, or many times they're just they can't find a job. But I was always interested in the in the volunteers, and I found them to be um, incredibly knowledgeable about what was going on in Savannah. Great commentators. I think Greek chorus describes it perfectly. No. <laughs> Please tell us about the character known as the musician. <laughs> well, the musician is based on somebody real. There was a guy who would just walk around Savannah and whistle these amazing, amazing tunes. Actually, he reminded me of my father. My father also used to walk around the Oak Grove where we grew up down on St. Simon's Island, where I was, you know, a young boy. And he, he would also whistle very, very complex tunes. The musician is this character who wanders around Savannah, is in fact a brilliant musician, but he only uses, you know, he only whistles. He's able to whistle two notes at once. I have a friend up here, Fred Newman, who does that. So he can whistle, you know, while he whistles one tone, he's also harmonizing with himself. So he's playing the fourth. I mean, it's a little trick he does with his tongue. It's amazing. It is amazing. And the thing about the musician, and this was always true in Savannah, is that when you'd hear the musician, we would always run out if we were in a bar or something, when we'd hear the musician, we'd run out of the bar and try to find him. But his music was kind of floating around and you, and you could never see him. One time somebody pointed him out and said, that's the musician. And it was this sort of odd little, I mean, rather plain looking, but small guy, looked a little like a gnome. And, but you wouldn't really particularly notice him. And he wasn't whistling when I saw him. Apparently he never whistled if he thought people were looking at him. Anyway, that was a real person that I knew in Savannah and I incorporated him into the novel Maybe in, as you say, a, a Greek chorus. A wonderful character. As we learn the backstories of Musgrove family members and read rich descriptions of Savannah's physical beauty, 
along with its historic monstrousness, the suspense increases. And the thriller comes to an end. George, ultimately, what crimes are you revealing in the kingdoms of Savannah? The crimes of Savannah, they keep uh, boiling up because I think there's, there's some deep streak of selfishness in this city and it's still very much with us about 12 or 14 years ago the sugar refinery blew up in Savannah, killing 14 people or so and wounding 40 horribly disfiguring folks with this terrible explosion. It was that the sugar itself, if it's allowed to hover in the air, sugar is actually very volatile and very explosive. And, and the sugar was all over the floor and the plant ha hadn't been properly cleaned for, it looks like, close to a century, OSHA had been complaining. OSHA and other government agencies had been complaining. You're not really cleaning this plant well enough. So you have little, so there were drifts of sugar on the floor. I mean, there were various people apparently who had been saying for years, this is a dangerous place, but responsibility you know, it was hard to pin down who exactly was going to go in and clean this place up. And so people died and they were, you know, they're a working class people. In Savannah, you know, throughout the 30s and 40s and 50s, a lot of plants moved down to the Savannah River because the pollution regulations were almost non-existent here, which meant we had filthy, dangerous water. But, you know, for years, every single member of the city council worked for uh, the Union Bag Company. So naturally what you were having were, you know, extremely high levels of toxic chemicals in the water supply. And, you know, the industry leaders uh, were celebrating and they were so happy and they were so happy that there were no unions in Savannah. That was the world of that has been the world of Savannah, a lot of corruption against this incredible, you know, the beauty of this town. So I, I think that we're still dealing with this, just this, I guess a sense in Savannah that we love wealth and we love wealthy people and we give them way too much power. Author George Dawes Green, more information about his new novel, The Kingdoms of Savannah, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from the creator of Candle House Collective, a theater company that performs interactive plays over the telephone for an audience of one. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Immersive experience has become very popular as a catchphrase for creative encounters taking place everywhere from art galleries to escape rooms. But how about over the telephone? The Innovative performances of Candle House Collective are played to a theater of one live via your telephone in the comfort of your own home. It's an audio improv approach to creative storytelling resulting in a unique choose-your-own-adventure type of experience. Evan Knighton is the founder of Candle House Collective and creator of the telephone-only plays Next Time and Claws. He joins me now via Zoom. Evan Knighton, welcome to City Lights. Very happy to be here, Lois. Thanks for having me. I was lucky enough to experience your play next time and look forward to discussing it with you in a moment. First, I was hoping you could give us some background on what inspired you to create Candle House Collective. I really love immersive theater, and it's something that kind of lives at the intersection of most of the influences in my life, you know, from growing up on the Twilight Zone and traditional folk stories to a love of alternate reality games online and haunted houses, you know, growing up on those. And immersive theater kind of was at the crossroads between all of them. And it was something I fell in love with really quickly, and it was something I realized very quickly was pretty localized to very major metropolitan areas, New York, LA, Chicago, London, and, and other places like that, and not, not much else, at least at the time. And I had already been so affected by this flourishing art form. I felt what was wanting was a way to be able to share it with anyone, anywhere, you know, but not in a recording sense, you know, a, a, that live interactive experience where the lasers of focus really are on you. So I decided to sort of G that up as much as I could, you know, to create something that was as accessible as possible, both location wise. And also you only, all you need is to be able to hear it, you know, something that could be experienced anywhere and something that was one-on-one, like really intimate, really had all lasers focused on you so that it didn't feel like a pre-recorded thing. You know, it provided that 
level of intimacy you can get in an on-site immersive piece and then some. Yeah. What is your history with theater? I grew up loving the theater. I particularly was, I grew up in New York, so I was, you know, I was very fortunate to have the exposure to theater that I did. And my favorite pieces were performance art, Uh, you know, immersive, sure, sometimes, but also just things I saw at La Mama or, you know, the public theaters under the radar festival. Sometimes off the beaten path performance art that was more interested in being what it was for its own sake or for the creator's sake and sharing that with an audience rather than solely focusing on the audience. There was this short sort of shared understanding. It, it felt that this in the space, everyone, everyone in the room was building something together, even if all you were doing was sitting in the dark. Hmm. How many plays has Candle House produced? At this point, a little over 25. Wow. And what were some of the challenges at the beginning? We started with a five-month-long alternate reality experience for 50 participants, 5-0. So, and what I mean by that is it was a continuous story, one continuous story that unfolded over the course of five months for these 50 people. And the whole thing was free, you know, it was sort of a, a proof of concept. And the first major challenge we ran into is, you know, how do you create something like immersive theater, which traditionally has been a very visual genre? How how do you create something like that without the visual? And something that I learned and got really excited about really quickly was that when you remove a sense that people are as reliant upon as sight, it drives the intention up and it can drive the intimacy up because a sense that one may be used to just relying on automatically is no longer in the picture. So it's it's something new. It's something new and it's something that allows you to shut out distractions, allows you to tune in a little more. Hmm. It's hard to imagine the business side of playing to an audience of one. If the goal of a traditional production is to fill theater seats, How does that translate to one-on-one performances? Yeah, that was a question that we had for a very long time. You know, we started in January of 2018, and for about two years, that was the question. You know, how do we make this scalable? And for a while, it really wasn't. It was just proof of concept project after proof of concept project. And despite being over the phone, you know, we were were either breaking even or losing a bit on productions, as I think a lot of immersive outfits and a lot of theatrical outfits do when they start up. But then Claws came along. It was the shortest piece I'd ever created for Candlehouse. It clocked in at 35 to 40 minutes, you know, kind of a one act almost. And it was this very succinct, highly interactive concept with a layer of choice that we expected to maybe run for a month. And here we are two years later, and it's still going. And we've been casting more and more people as the principal role. And the same has been the case with next time. And what we're discovering is there is a way to fill a house. It's just a lot more individual work, you know, to have multiple actors performing the same role and to develop a role that can accommodate a bunch of different types of people, a bunch of different types of actors is key to making this kind of thing lucrative. Lucrative, but much less sustainable. I was wondering with all of the effort, do you have to have jobs on this side? Yes. Uh, 
this point, absolutely. A lot of the people who are part of the team at Candle House are very much multi-hyphenates and people of many hats. And in a way that makes things better, you know, because we have this collective of people who are so predisposed to thinking outside the box because that's, you know, art is not usually sustainable for, for a while. And some people get lucky, some people really work to get there. But for the vast majority of artists, especially younger artists, it's not a sustainable living. So, you know, day jobs are necessary, but it means that the skills that people bring to the table are varied and often serve goals that we didn't, we may not even have known that we had. Oh, I imagine the level of commitment is tremendous. Yeah, absolutely. All of us really believe this is a significant part of what people refer to as the future of theater, which might sound, you know, <laughs> out there. But telephonic pieces became not, I don't want to say commonplace, but they became more numerous during the pandemic. And there are a few out there, aside from us, that also have that longevity. And I'm really happy about that. I'm really happy that people are looking at this art form not just as a an intriguing novelty, but as a viable and potentially incredibly fruitful new avenue of theater. Great. So as I mentioned, I experienced your production of Next Time. Before we move on, I'd like to play a bit of trailer. Worried about the future. Disappointed with the past. Overwhelmed by the present. Overwhelmed. Worried. Confused. Don't be! Do you know where you are? Do you know who you are? What brought you to this advertisement? Who is this advertisement brought to you by? And what do we do? You already know. You simply may have forgotten. And that's okay. Because next time we call... And we will call... You'll find out all over again. Confused. Worried. Overwhelmed. Don't be. Just answer the phone. We're here, here to, to help. So I think confused is indeed how I felt at first. But that's kind of your purpose, isn't it? In a way, I mean, Next Time in particular is kind of a love letter to Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Beetlejuice, The Good Place, all, all things that are confusing, you know, because they're about... What's next? Exactly, what's coming, and that is a confusing thing to think about. And, you know, the line in the trailer is confused, worried, overwhelmed, don't be, because really, there's nothing else you can do. So your play set up situations which immediately put the audience member in the center of the story. I was hoping you could give us a summary of the story of next time. No spoilers, of course. It is tricky because, as you know, the first major spoiler for next time comes about five seconds in. But um, <laughs> but I, I can say that next time is a session with an entity called the Bureau, and particularly a caseworker from the Bureau who has been assigned to your case. And what becomes clear, like I said, about five seconds in is what the purpose of this call is. Uh, I'm not going to say what it is, although most people could probably get it just from reading the, the description on our website, but it asks you to take an inventory of your life so far and sort of analyzes it, not necessarily in a psychotherapeutic way, but in a 
equal parts clinical and compassionate way. You know, as you know, next time comes with a very big choice. And I think that's the core of the piece is that choices are critical, you know, even in the strangest of moments, because, you know, and this is the tagline of the call, but there's no time like the present. When I experienced next time, I was asked to offer occasional personal details, which then became part of the story. I chose to answer honestly. Is that necessary or is that your intention? As clearly as we can, we ask people to come as their honest selves. We understand people have different levels of comfort. And, you know, for some of our more intense pieces that have much more limited runs, you know, being yourself is necessary. But what we're giving you, among other things, what we're connecting you with is vulnerability. You know, sure, there might be a a character on the other end of the line, but the person performing it, it's not a, you know, memorized script that they're just repeating over and over. They are there to connect with you. They're there to create something with you. You will get the most out of what we do by just coming as you are. Mm. Next time is a fantasy comedy, but your production of Claws is decidedly darker. My senior producer, Kim, knows I don't like horror. I don't do well with scary stories. So she volunteered to experience Claws. And she said it was wonderfully creepy. She also mentioned a similar give and take of information with the character. Does the darker mood of the story of Claws add more weight to that exchange? In a way, I think, yes. I, I mean, next time is a story about you. You know, the, the caseworker is there, as any caseworker is, as a facilitator. And, and there are elements of the caseworker's own story in there, but really it's a story that is entirely dependent on what you think, what you feel, what you believe, and who you are. Clause is not the opposite, but it, but it is different because you are asked to take on the role of a helpline representative and you're helping someone else. So in a way, you know, it could be considered maybe a little easier for people who don't like getting quite as intimate, but I hesitate to say that because you're right. The darkness of the subject matter and the scenario that the lead character Danny is in do lead to some very personal explorations and and, and realizations, even through the lens of his own conflict. Kim asked that I play part of the trailer for Claws. There's something in my closet. It's, um, it it looks like, uh, there's a monster in my closet, and if you don't send help, it's going to kill me, and I... Hello? Did, did you hang up? You, you can hear me, right? That's pretty scary stuff. And I wondered, for the actors leading these performances, are the darker stories particularly 
draining? I mean, what are what are the pressures or inspirations that actors experience performing in such an unconventional space themselves? At least with the first project, the first few projects, it was just or mostly me doing doing most of the performing, most of the calls. You know, there were nights I'd do 15 calls back to back, and we've brought that number extremely down because, you know, I'm not expecting anyone else to do that. But the challenge of the work is also the privilege of the work. You know, the, the challenge is it's intimate and immediate, and that's also what's so exciting about it. And it does depend on the piece, I think. You know, Claws is very high octane. It's, it is horror coded. And, you know, the energy of that, literally just the energy of existing in that high octane space is, is tiring. But it's also very exciting because there's no monotony to it. Every person brings something different. A piece like Next Time, equally so, you know, Next Time might be, uh, may lend itself a bit more to repetition because, you know, repetition is in the world of the piece. Uh, you know, the caseworker, you're definitely not their last case that day. So it almost feels in the the character, but to do a, a one-off scenario over and over again and to have it be so different every time is something I think is challenging at first, but invariably what performers who, you know, our performers realize is that what it does is make it exciting. It makes the anticipation of waiting to make that next call, waiting to begin someone else's experience. It magnifies that because you as the performer are also getting an experience. The participant is performing for you as themselves, as honestly themselves, but is performing for you as much as you're performing for them. You are, like I said, with performance art, you're truly creating something together. Evan, what strengths do you look for when casting? Adaptability. That's number one. Because the pieces change quite a bit, and, and not just participant to participant. Claws has changed quite a bit since I first created the, the treatment for it in 2020. The pieces that, the longer they run, the more evolution they go through. No, no piece is ever really finished. And a lot of it is informed by what we realize might be challenges with participants, what we realize might not be working, what we should have more of. And that requires a great deal of adaptability on, on the actor's part to exist in this space that is ever evolving, that changes both call to call and day to day. That's, that's a really big one. And the other really big one is empathy, which I, I know is a bit of a cliche when it comes to theater, but really it's an ability to genuinely listen and comprehend what someone else is saying, which is sort of a rare skill. You know, any, anybody can listen to what someone else is saying, but to really hear them and to really understand it in a way that allows you to respond with empathy, with immediacy, is a very rare skill. And it's something we, we look for. I happen to think that, you know, our actors are really, really good at what they do. And it's because they are so open to anything that someone might throw their way. Evan Nyden, founder of Candle House Collective, from our conversation recorded this past January. The immersive telephone theater company's award-winning thriller, Claws, is still available, and their current 
comedy offering is Lennox Mutual. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Kanavi takes us to Fernbank for a deep dive into the Tyrannosaurus family tree. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you visited Fernbank Museum, you've probably been amazed by the size of those giants of the Mesozoic that inhabit the atrium. Now, the museum is taking a deep dive into the family tree of the Tyrannosaurs with a new exhibition, part of their Dynamite Summer Program. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Kanavi stopped by the museum to meet the Tyrannosaurs and their relatives. Most of us are familiar with the T-Rex, whether you remember him from sixth grade science class or from the classic Jurassic Park films. But did you know that the Tyrannosaur family line spanned 160 million years and that the terrifying creature's ancestors were feathered and only slightly larger than a chicken? Fernbank Museum presents Tyrannosaurs Meet the Family as part of their Dynomite Summer. The museum's communications manager, Jenna Allison, says the interactive virtual reality experiences are what really set this exhibition apart. There's the option to grow a virtual dinosaur egg. There's the option to act like you're an asteroid destroying part of the Earth. There's a portion where you walk through what is a cityscape of Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta and you see dinosaurs running through it like as if they were in your own backyard. So it's it's got a lot of modern technology that really brings this exhibit to life. As you enter the exhibition, you hear the constant dull roar of the dinosaurs and their stomping feet as they run through that simulated Centennial Park. And though these early tyrannosaurs are terrifying, they are noticeably smaller than the T-Rex we all know. And they kind of look like chickens. But how do scientists know that these ancestors were built this way? Um, I think it has to do with the structure of their frame, is to estimate how they would have walked or ran based on the formation of their bones and the way they're put together. Um, And we know that the reason they think that they mirror chickens from what I understand, is because of the way that they reproduce with their with their eggs and whatnot. Um, and so I think that that's probably where the idea comes from, that they would mimic the kind of, I don't want to say waddle, but the pecking motion, the way mm-hmm. the chickens walk. Yeah, very similar. But if you are looking for the enormous, ferocious T-Rex, don't worry. They've got a life-sized skeleton that barely fits in the building. My favorite thing is a life-sized Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton. Um, it's kind of gives you a view of what it would be like to walk underneath these creatures if you had been with them in the prehistoric times. Scientists have been studying dinosaurs since the 1800s. But why? What do these ancient creatures have to teach us? 
probably the most important part about studying dinosaurs is to figure out um, evolutionary tracks. So for a long time, we thought dinosaurs came from turtles, for example, and within the last couple of years, research has shown that it actually comes from chickens, um, at least the Tyrannosaur line specifically. It's an ancestor to the modern day chicken, so it kind of lets you relate to prehistoric history in real time. It's really special. Fernbank Museum is having a summer full of dinosaurs. In addition to Tyrannosaurus Meet the Family, Fernbank After Dark, Bones and Brews invites guests to dig up the dirt on dinos on August 12th, and there's a dinosaur birthday bash on August 20th in celebration of Giants of the Mesozoic's 20th anniversary. And according to British think tank, the Adam Institute, dinosaurs may be making a comeback. We may have real dinosaurs roaming reservations by 2050. I'm hoping it's the smaller chicken-sized ones and not that giant T-Rex. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy. Tyrannosaurs Meet the Family is on display through September 5th at Fernbank Museum. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., actor Jasmine Guy stops by to tell us about her new film, The Ladymakers. Plus, this year's winner of the Georgia Poet Laureate's Teen Prize, Midtown High School senior Aaron Sernat Joshi. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitz's do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.